if you grab your Bible, grab your journal, uh, uh, last week we almost finished 1 John chapter 4. And uh, I want to just grab a verse and jump into to chapter 5 this morning. Maybe as a, as a Christian, you've asked yourself questions like these. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Something very debated in some theological circles. Is there an unpardonable sin? And if there is, what is that unpardonable sin? And have I committed it? Maybe you are in a season that some Christians go through where they think, does God even hear my prayers? What's the point? Is this just an exercise that makes me feel good? Or is there really a God hearing my prayers and responding as I cry out to him with answers to my requests? Is, is that really a thing? And how can I have confidence? If you've ever asked yourself a question uh, like, am I a spiritual failure? I keep trying and trying and trying, but the growth is not happening at the rate I want it to happen. Or I make a little progress and then I lose a little ground and I make a little progress and I, and I lose a little ground and I'm frustrated with my own spiritual growth. What does that mean about me? Am I, am I a broken Christian? Am I an inferior uh, Christian somehow? It seems like other of God's children are way ahead of me. What does that mean for me? If you've ever asked any of those questions, hang tight because John has the answers for you in 1 John chapter number five. We'll get to them this morning. Let me read the last verses of chapter four and bridge the gap over to chapter five. Now, here's what chapter four ends like. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen and this commandment we have from him whosoever loves God must also love his brother notice it's not optional if you're gonna love God you must love your brother according to the apostle John you're either a lover or a hater but you're not going to be both it's one or the other and anyone who claims to love, while at the same time hating, has made a false claim. God has made this compulsory in our, in our behavior, in our walk. Anyone who loves God must love their brothers and sisters. Several weeks ago, I was reading a story that really characterized this type of love. Uh, it was about a man named Ernest Gordon. Uh, Ernest Gordon was... Uh, a soldier, Scottish soldier, World War II, and uh, he and a squad of his men were captured by the Japanese, and they were placed in a, a bur in a in a prison of war camp, POW camp, in Burma, under the the Japanese uh, rule during World War II. And maybe if you're a World War II, if you if you watch those old war movies of of Americana. Uh, there is one called uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai, and it, it chronicles the story, or at least one of the stories, of these men uh, who were in the prison camp. In particular, Gordon spent three years there, and they suffered such cruelty, uh, starvation. They were brutalized. They were, they were treated inhumanely by the Japanese captors who were running the PO camp. And when some of them were ultimately liberated, our soldiers and, and the Scottish soldiers, the people that were there, 
were just human skeletons, basically, when, when they found them. And what the Japanese did is they, they took these uh, Allied soldiers and they forced them into slave labor to build what a railroad through the Burmese jungle from Burma down into Thailand. And uh, they nicknamed it the Railway of Death because obviously it cost the lives of all of uh, many of the people who were building the railroad. Well, back to Ernest Gordon for a minute. Uh, a, a remarkable incident occurred one day while working on the railroad. Uh, the Japanese officer in charge of the POWs had discovered that one of the shovels was missing. And so he lined up all the POWs and told them, okay, the shovel's missing. Uh, I want to know who stole it, <laughs> who took the shovel, and what are you trying to, you know, trying to dig out of the camp, or what are you trying to do? And uh, it was just silent. No one, no one came forward to say they had stolen the shovel. So the Japanese officer pulled his sidearm, and he said, I'm going to begin to shoot you guys one by, I will kill you all right now. And he threatened to start shooting the prisoners one by one if somebody didn't step forward who had taken the shovel. And all of a sudden, one of the men stepped forward. The Japanese officer put away his sidearm, picked up another shovel, and in front of the squad of POWs beat that man to death with a shovel, just bludgeoned him until he was dead. He ordered the body to be removed and thrown into the trash heap. And then he ordered another count of the shovels. And when they counted the shovels, it was discovered that in fact, no shovel had been missing at all. Someone had just made a counting error. They were all accounted for. And everyone in that moment realized an innocent man had stepped forward to sacrifice himself for the sake of his fellow soldiers. His act of sacrificial love had such an effect on that group of POWs that it transformed them from this attitude of every man for himself to survive. It transformed them into a brotherhood, that band of brothers type language, that now they were a family, they were brothers, and they were going to all care for one another. And the result of his act was that each man began to respect began to love and began to care for the other prisoners in the camp. Well, as you know, that was a three-year period they were in the POW camp. As the war came to its conclusion, obviously, uh, yay, we won. I mean, the Allied soldiers came in and liberated the camp. And in the moment when the Allied army swept in, the roles were instantly reversed. The Japanese captors were now our prisoners of war and you might think in your mind well here it comes they're going to retaliate and treat them just as cruelly as our scottish soldiers were were treated but instead a remarkable thing happened the scottish soldiers insisted there be no more hatred there be no more killing there be no more cruelty and they forgave their Japanese captors of their crimes. The man who had sacrificed himself had showed love for his brothers by laying down his life for his brothers. His act of sacrificial love had transformed the lives of those for whom he died. Does this sound familiar? 
This is exactly what Jesus did and is what he's describing. His love, the soldier's love who gave his life, his love now took effect in the lives of his brothers. And they begin to love, love one another, and even go so far as to love their enemies. Now, that's a beautiful story of what sacrificial love looks like. And that's the type of love that John keeps talking about in his epistle. Now, let's bridge the gap over to chapter 5. It is that love that leads us to victory. Let me read verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of the Father, of him. Now, John's words express a relational bond between two people that is so strong that one friend accepts their friends as his friends. Now, the Americans have a colloquialism on this. Any friend of yours is a friend of mine. That's right. And that's the bond that's being described here. Let me take it one step further as John does. A genuine friendship will also take into account the children of your friend. I want you to think about that for just a moment, which is really the context of what he's saying. You see, I care about the children of my friends because I care about my friends. To love your friends also to extend that love to their children. Now, what John says in that thinking is to love the father is to love the son. If you really love God, you will love Jesus Christ, his son. Verse two, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, John equates loving God to keeping his commandments. Now, we already know what keeping his commandments means. We've been studying that. In this context, it has a very specific meaning of context of chapters 2 and 3 are understood as keeping the commandments are loving God and believing in the name of Jesus Christ. You might extend it to loving others as well. That's what keeping the commandments are all about. Loving others, loving God, and believing on the name of Jesus. Now, when you put it that way, you say, well, keeping God's commandments are so hard. Not in this context, because loving is not burdensome to us. Loving is, is our delight. It's our joy to, to love one another, show love, express that love, live out that love. That is what it's all about. Notice how love leads to victory. Verse number four, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. You're going to start to see a recurring theme here. Even our faith, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? When he uses overcomes three times in a row that fast, uh, you're getting the idea that we are victorious. But when we say overcome the world, it doesn't mean defeat as in we conquered the world, we crushed the world, we smashed the world. It's not like that. Overcome does not mean we defeat the world. We're not trying to hurt the world in that sense. But instead, overcoming the world means to live successfully God's way. Rather than live in rebellion to God or live like a rebellious world, we're living a life that shows love, a life that lives out the life of Jesus Christ. That's what overcoming the world 
is all about. You see, John's encouraging his disciples. This is the context. His disciples were discouraged, so he writes the epistle to encourage his disciples. And here's why. Because believers sometimes feel like we're not getting anywhere in our spiritual growth. Surely you can relate to this. Sometimes we feel like, I'm just not making any progress. Prayer is still a struggle for me. Does anybody ever feel that? The flesh still has a powerful pull. Sometimes we revert to childish behaviors. That's what John's talking about. I want to encourage you that you're, you're going to make it through this. You're going to be victorious. Our spiritual growth is not a straight line upward. If you have this expectation, it's, an, it's, a, it's not realistic to expect that I'm going to get saved, I'm going to get baptized, or I'm going to get right with God, zoom, and I'm just going to grow, and it's going to be this type of chart for my spiritual life. Our spiritual growth is not a straight line upward. It is up and down but trending upward. All my stock traders out there now, of course, ours looks inverted right now, but it'll come back. But this is what we're accustomed to seeing. It's up, it's down, but you know what? Over time, it's up. That's the way I want us to think about what spiritual growth. Don't be frustrated because sometimes uh, you're struggling. That's normal for all of us. You're not an inferior or broken or, or second-class Christian. All of our lives are up and down, but over the long period, trending upward. John assures us that we've overcome the world because our faith in Jesus is what has guaranteed our victory. Not, not our perfection, not I'm doing better than you. Our faith in Jesus is what has guaranteed our victory because he's overcome the world and greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. John's second big thought here is that we are trusting or we are supposed to be trusting, we are trusting in God's testimony. The following verses that we're about to get into, you're going to have to put on your theological hat right here. Some of you are really uh, love reading and debating theological points. Here's your section. These are some of the most controversial uh, writings, verses in all of John's writing. Before we get to the verses, it's important for me to remind you of the context. Context just means the setting or the terms uh, what defines what's being said in the passage. The context is found in verse 9 and 10. If you're underlining or journaling this morning, you're looking for the word testimony. Mark it every time you see it. Here's what it says, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whosoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself whoever does not believe in the son of god has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that god has borne concerning his son now what i want you to see is that john uses the word testimony five times in two short verses so whatever we're about to talk about the context is clearly centered in the testimony about who Jesus really is. Remember, this is what the whole first John is about. They're debating or there was some dissension that Jesus wasn't really human or he wasn't really the son of God or he really didn't die or he died, but he really didn't rise from the dead. That was the big debate that was going on that was causing John's disciples 
some, some difficulty. So John's writing to say, no, I'm an eyewitness. Remember that. I was there. I saw it all. And I got 500 friends who were there. They saw it. We witnessed these things. And my testimony is true. And this is the test. And so he's talking about the real validation, the truth about who Jesus is. Whatever John's about to say to his disciples, it has something to do with a controversy about Jesus being the Son of God, sent down from heaven to earth, who died an atoning death for our sins on the cross. That's the controversy that John's trying to solve. All right, here we go. Look down now at verse 6. This is he, talking about Jesus, who came by water and blood. If you're journaling, underline water and blood, circle the word and. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. God's testimony then is that Jesus came by water and by blood. Now, for some reason, this is the answer to the controversy they're having and we're just trying to catch up with where their mind is right now. And whatever this controversy is, God's Holy Spirit is saying, the water and the blood and me, the Holy Spirit, testify together that this is the real, authentic Jesus Christ. All right, now here it comes. Verse 7 and 8 are the really controversial verses. I'm going to read verse 7 and 8 and let me then take it apart. God's testimony is that Jesus came by water and blood. Let me read. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three all agree. So what the Holy Spirit is testifying to, the water is testifying to, and the blood is testifying to, and all three of them agree about why Jesus came and who Jesus is. Okay, you really got to focus right here. You ready? Now, if you're a punctuation freak, if you're an English major, that's the only people I'm really talking to right now. Uh, if you're an English major uh, or maybe a school teacher and punctuation is your, your thing, uh, you want to find the book entitled Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. Go find it on Amazon. You'll be fascinated by it. It's a book about punctuation and why punctuation is important. What I'm about to talk about really has nothing to do with punctuation, except that 1 John 5, 7 is the great controversy of the Johannine comma. Now, here's what you want to wrap your brain around. When I say comma in modern English usage, comma means a punctuation mark that separates a phrase comma. Okay. In old English, however, the word comma does not mean a punctuation mark. In old English usage, the word comma means the phrase itself, the words themselves that are in the commas. So if we say the Johannine comma, it means a series of words that follow. What you're looking at, if you're looking at 1 John 5, 7, is the Johannine comma controversy. 
I'm going to show you a picture. I'll explain what it is. Hold on. I want to show you a picture of an ancient Latin manuscript in just a moment of 1 John chapter 5. Today, this manuscript is residing in the St. Gallen Cathedral. Do you have St. Gallen? St. Gallen Cathedral in uh, uh, St. Gall, uh, Switzerland is where this cathedral is. In this cathedral, there is an ancient, there's a copy of it, an ancient Latin manuscript of some of the New Testament, which includes a copy in that manuscript of 1 John. Here it is in ancient Latin. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see, here is the 1 John, and then down here at the bottom, I want you to see in different handwriting that someone has made journal notes. This manuscript is called uh, Codex Sangalisa 63. No one cares, but that's the name of this manuscript. And why it's important is it is a 9th century Latin manuscript of the text that we're studying right now. This little note at the bottom is called a gloss in theological circles. A gloss means somebody was studying this kind of the way that our staff here studies we write in our Bibles, we make notes, we do journal entries, we use highlighters, we draw arrows, we make pictures. As a matter of fact, if you've been to Miss Rachel Wilson's Bible journaling class, then she's been leading a group of you through how to read the passage and let God speak to you and then draw on the page to reinforce what the teaching of the scripture is in a memorable way. When you see that page, you'll know instantly what God was trying to communicate to you. This is a version, this little sentence at the bottom, this comma, this phrase at the bottom is an example of someone in the ninth century journaling. They're reading this manuscript of first John and they're making some notes at the bottom of the page. We know these are notes because they're in a different handwriting, first of all, but we know they're notes because there is no Latin manuscript prior to the ninth century that contains that sentence. None doesn't exist. Further, there was no Greek manuscript of the New Testament that in, contained that sentence prior to 15. 20. Let me tell you how we know. Because there was a theologian, there's a Bible printing theologi the theological scholar named Erasmus. And Erasmus was the first person in history to print a Greek copy of the New Testament on a printing press. Now remember, Gutenberg's press is invented in, in the 14s, you know what I'm saying, 1400s. Then Erasmus comes along in the late 14, early 1500s, and he's doing his theological work, his Bible translating work. And he says, we no longer have to copy it by hand. Now we've got a movable type press and we'll start printing Bibles on that press. Erasmus was the, the first person to print a Greek text on the printing press. When Erasmus printed 1 John, Erasmus did not include that sentence in his Greek New Testament that he printed. Consequently, there were a few theologians who criticized Erasmus and gave him some grief. And they said, hey, why didn't you, why didn't you put that sentence in there? Uh, and Erasmus said, because that's not what John wrote. Those are just somebody's journaling remarks at the bottom of the page called a gloss. A glossary 
their either a definition or some uh, just comment that they would make, some Bible notes, just like we would make Bible notes. And uh, there was a debate uh, in the fifth, early 1500s. And so uh, Erasmus said, uh, it's 1515. Those words don't exist in a real manuscript. That's just a journaling entry from some scholar. Those are not John's words. And the debate got so contentious that Erasmus finally said to his peers, if, if you guys could find a Greek manuscript, even if it was highly questionable that had those words in it, I'll include it in my next printing, knowing that one did not exist anywhere on planet Earth. So here's what happened. During the next five years, a Franciscan friar living in Oxford created a Greek manuscript and when he rewrote the Greek manuscript, the Franciscan friar living in Oxford, he took those words and inserted them up into the text as if they were John's words and not the margin notes written by some Bible student. They presented this Greek manuscript to Erasmus and said, see, we found one. And Erasmus said, okay, I'll be good to my word. So in his next edition of the New Testament that he printed in Greek, he included those words in the text, but he used a footnote because he was highly skeptical that it was valid. And he used a footnote and he said, I believe that this manuscript has been made to order. In other words, somebody's put their own words up here into the scripture. So now I don't want to hope I didn't confuse anybody. But if you're watching this morning and you're using a KJV or an NKJV, the KJV NKJV family of manuscripts has the journal gloss in the text. So if you have a KJV, here's what it reads like this morning. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. Those words have been added. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That entire clause from the word in heaven to the period has been added into the text as if they were actually John's words. They are not John's words. They are the words of some Bible scholar who wrote a journal entry, a margin note, into the footnotes of his Bible. What we're concerned about this morning is not the Johannine controversy, the Johannine comma, but I want to clear that up because if you have a different Bible this morning, you're going to say, wait, the pastor skipped a half of a verse. I didn't. What did John actually say? All the new, uh, more modern Bible versions recognized how the error happened, and they've all corrected it now, except for the old family of Bible. So here's what John actually said, verse 7. For there are three that testify. That's all. That's what he said. Because now he's going to explain it in verse 8. The spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. So here's my question to you this morning. You get a chance to do some commenting now. To what do the spirit, water, and blood agree? Pray tell what they're agreeing to. Now remember the context. They're agreeing to something related to who Jesus is. They're agreeing to verse six so let's read verse six again this is he who came by water and blood 
Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Now, I think Jesus coming by blood, I think most of us are going to have a pretty clear understanding of what that means. And I think we would all without hesitation say, that's probably got something to do with us and him dying a substitutionary death for us. The big question is, what does water and blood mean? Now, basically, you have three theological options here. And I'm going to let you be the theologian today, and you can decide which option you want to pursue as your theological understanding, but I'll present the three options for you. What are the water and the blood? What are they referring to? Here's option number one. The water and the blood refer to Jesus' baptism by water, and the blood would refer to his crucifixion, his death on the cross. Option two, the water and the blood refer to only Jesus' crucifixion. And I think the thinking behind this has to do with John chapter number 19, verse 34, if you want to make a cross-reference, John 19, 34. Spear is stuck in Jesus' side at the crucifixion, and John's very careful to tell us, and out came water and blood. And so a lot of people say, well, that's just a reference to the cross, the crucifixion, his death. He came by water and by blood. The third option is that the water and the blood refer to Jesus' birth as a human, coming into the world as a real, legitimate, historical figure, a human being, and then his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection to be our Savior. So these are your three options. The water and the blood refer to baptism and, and death on the cross. Water and blood refer to cross only. Or water and blood refer to coming as a human, as in my, never forget the day we were at Babe's Chicken with a group of church families, and suddenly someone's water broke. And it was a quick rush to the hospital. And listen, that's the way we all came into this world, through amniotic fluid. Water, and then death on the cross and resurrection. So we have three options. And if you want to comment, if you're very courageous this morning, you can comment, I'm option one, I'm option two, I'm option three. If you're nervous to comment, then just, th they're commenting? Okay, so Jeremy's telling me we got lots of threes popping up on the screen, okay? Uh, if you're nervous about committing, I'll explain a little more, and then you can see if you feel validated at all. There's a couple of clues in the context. So here's clue number one. The text says that Jesus came through water and blood if the water and blood refer to option one uh, jesus uh, baptism and crucifixion then his coming would be a reference to his ministry here on earth which began at his baptism when he was baptized by john the baptist and then he began to john said okay go and follow jesus he must increase but I, i'm decreasing and, and that's what, if you choose that option, then that's what you're thinking. His ministry began at his baptism, and then his being our Savior reached its peak at his death on the cross. Through the blood, he sealed that he was our Savior and gave his life for us. And I think that's, that's, that's theologically sound, by the way. If the water and the blood refer only to option two, only the crucifixion, then his coming would mean as our Savior 
through the cross only with no reference to his being a, a, a human, a human ministry, a baptism, a birth, anything like that. John's only focused on the cross. But here's, here's my argument for this. If that's what John's saying, then blood would have been enough. You wouldn't even have to bring up the water. It's minor in the story of coming from his side at the crucifixion. It's, a, it's kind of a side note. It's not material to the story. Why would you need to say the water? So uh, uh, if the water and the blood refer to option three, Jesus' birth as a man, coming into the world as a man, living a real life, and, and then laying down his life on the cross to be our savior, I think that's sound theology as well. Uh, my point is the fact that the Bible is emphasizing the and water and the blood, and that seems to be John's emphasis right here, makes option two the least likely in my opinion. So I would say option two has the least credible theological position. Here's clue number two. John says that the spirit is working alongside the water and the blood, and they're all testifying together. So uh, the three of them all agree about the message they're proclaiming. If the spirit constitutes God's testimony from above, and the water and blood constitute human testimony from on earth, then option three fits the best. However, remember it was the spirit who came down in the form of a dove at the baptism of Jesus. And John is proclaiming, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And the Holy Spirit and the voice of God are speaking in this moment of baptism, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was a great moment of testimony where the spirit was bearing witness to the authenticity of who Jesus Christ was. So I would say option one fits very strongly with the text as well. Either way, one or three are good answers. Option two would be the weakest theological position. One and three, the strongest. Historically, I have always leaned towards three because in my opinion the argument john is making is they were having a controversy about was jesus really a human well if he had a human birth like all of us did and the water broke and mary went into labor and birthed jesus in bethlehem and laid him in a manger he was really a man he hurt he sweat he worked he lived he cried he ate he was an authentic human being who lived uh, and is validated by historical fact. So I've tended to go with three, but I would say this about position one. If you hold option one, I certainly wouldn't criticize you because the Holy Spirit has testified at the baptism of Jesus as to who he is. And I think either one, one or three are solid theological positions. The big takeaway now from this passage in John is that the passage is clearly concerned that we have a correct testimony about who Jesus is. And the water is testifying to who Jesus really is. The blood is testifying to who Jesus really is. And the Holy Spirit's raised his hand now and said, I, I the water and the blood all agree. This 
Jesus Christ is the Son of God who really came as a man and he laid down his life in a sacrificial atoning death for all of humanity, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John makes two things very clear. This is verse number 11. This is the testimony. Here are the two things that are very clear. God has given us eternal life. Can I get a witness to that? Mm -hmm. And this life is in his son. Two things are very clear. God wants you to have eternal life. And that life is found in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to get it. Now, if you dismiss everything else I've said today, grab those two things. These are absolutely clear. If you want to memorize a few verses this week, 1 John 5, 11, 10, 11, and 12, really. But 1 John right here, these verses 11 and 12 are verses every disciple of Jesus Christ sh should memorize. Uh, this is God's testimony. He's given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Verse 12, whoever has the son has life and who does not have the son of god does not have life the ultimate question for any of us today then is this question not what's going to happen to the stock market not what's going to happen to the economy not are we going to go back to school the ultimate question for every one of us is do we have the son are you connected to god through a relationship with jesus christ because if you have that Friends, you have everything. You have every need met, every prayer being answered, the onboard presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're a virtual hotspot yourself of God's presence in this world. To have the Son is to have eternal life, and not to have the Son is not to have eternal life. It is a binary choice that brings great, great clarity into all spiritual conversations. No doubt you've had some spiritual, theological conversations with people. Let's make it very simple, John says. Do you have the Son or not? It's a binary choice. You do or you don't. Now, again, John wrote other books, the Gospel of John being one of them, and he was very consistent in recording Jesus' words in those other places as well. For example, John 3.36 makes it very clear. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36, makes it very clear that the way to have the Son is to believe in the Son. Let me read it from the NIV because it's very powerfully written. Do you have it in ESV? No. Oh, NIV. Here we go. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Notice that having is equated to believing. Whoever believes has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. John's making it crystal clear as he quotes Jesus' words. Anyone who rejects Jesus as the Son of God cannot have the life that God has offered because it's not possible to reject God's Son and yet have life in God. It's just not possible. John chapter number 14, Jesus said something very similar. He said, I am the way the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but except through me. You gotta go through the door, and the door is Jesus Christ. Now I wanna say to our church something uh, simple but, but profound. You need to be tolerant. Hear people out. People can believe whatever they wanna believe. It's the kind of world it is, and it's the way our country operates. Be tolerant, be kind, 
be loving, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, you must maintain the truth about who Jesus Christ really is. That is what we must do. Yes, we're going to be kind. Yes, we're going to hear people out. Yes, we're going to allow people to believe whatever they want to believe. But our position is that it's a binary choice. And we're going to maintain and we're going to articulate the truth that Jesus is the only way. Now, John ends chapter 5 by going down a checklist of six things that every one of us can know. Let me go through them as quickly as I can. Number one, we know we have eternal life. This is verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Now, if you struggle with assurance of your salvation, if sometimes doubts creep in and you're, you're a little unsure, this is the verse you need to memorize because God has not left us without assurance. We know that we are born again if we have the Son of God. If we put our belief in Jesus Christ, we may know we have eternal life. The second thing, John says, is we know God hears us when we pray. Now, this is something we alluded to a little bit earlier. Let me read verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know then that what we are asking for, that we are going to have the requests that we've asked of him. We know he hears us, and we know we have the requests that we've asked for, that he's going to grant those requests. Now, obviously, I mean, what's obvious about this is that some of John's disciples did not have confidence when they prayed. That's why he's writing this to them. They were praying, saying, does it really matter? Maybe you've had those same thoughts. Maybe you're like, I know I should pray today, but does it really matter? Is anyone really listening? I mean, yes, I believe there's a God, but doesn't he have bigger things to do than to worry about my, my little crises that I'm having? Does God really hear me? And if he does hear me, does he really care about the nonsense that I'm asking? I mean, in the big scheme of things, I'm so insignificant. So sometimes even wonderful children of God have this doubt as to whether God is hearing. So that's why John's written these two verses. If you sometimes struggle with prayer and, and, and having confidence that God's going to hear and answer your prayers, these are the two verses then you need to memorize, verse 14 and 15. Obviously, God, uh, John wanted to encourage us and his disciples, God does hear your prayers. Now, um, Jeremy, I think I saw this week you leading a group of men uh, online through a N.T. Wright study and prayer, uh, according to the Lord's Prayer, is that right? Mm -hmm. uh, how do I get in on that if I want to be a part of that? It's halfway done already. Oh, halfway done already. Okay, well, better late than never. I saw a lot of men in there, though. Uh, Robert Cherno, just a big group of guys I saw participating in that uh, study. Uh, and here's why I want to bring that up, because you're studying the Lord's Prayer. And David, maybe this is something, you and I have talked about this, doing a whole series on this in the fall, maybe on the Lord's Prayer a little bit more thoroughly. In the Lord's Prayer, Jeremy, what you and your group of men are studying is Jesus said, pray like this. And when he began to pray, he didn't say, God, here's what I want. I don't care what you want. He said, Father, praying that your will would be done right here as it's being done in heaven right now. 
God, not my will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, John took that lesson from Jesus. Jesus taught that lesson to John. Now, John's taking that lesson he learned from Jesus to pray according to the Father's will, and he's giving it to all of the disciples worldwide, including the Cornerstone people today. And John is saying to us, when we pray according to God's will, you have confidence. One, he's going to hear your prayer. And two, he's going to answer your prayer. So I'm encouraged about you guys doing the study. Pray according to God's will. He will hear your prayer and he will answer your prayer on the authority of the word of God. Now, here's the crisis for all of us. Since in any given situation, we don't know what the will of God is. I mean, if I say, God, you know, should I give? Should I be loving? Should I attend church? Should I read my, sure, I know God's will in those situations. But, and again, if I already know God's will, why am I praying about it? I should just be doing it. But in the situations we normally are praying about, which job do I take? God, help me with the interview. God, which you know, car to buy? Lord, you bring, bring friends into my... The things that we're making life decisions about, we don't always know whether it's God's will or not, and that's why we're praying about it. He's teaching us pray. Pray as best you can. Articulate it the best way you know how to articulate it. I'm going to grab some of Paul's language now. And if you can't say it right, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will help translate it. Say it the best way you can in your heart to God or audibly to God. Articulate your prayer, but articulate it with confidence, knowing that God's going to hear it. And if you're praying for something that's not his will, guess what? The answer is no. So now what we struggle with, or it could be the answer is not right now. Timing is a big deal with God. And sometimes things that he's glad to give us and do for us, not yet. Uh, my kids wanted the keys to the car at 14. No, not yet. But sure, later, when the time's right and, and you can handle that responsibility. And I think many of the things that I've prayed for in my life haven't been, no, not ever. I think the answer's been not yet. Just hold on a minute. Let's get you a little more mature and a little more responsible, Bobby. And then I can, then I can bring that into your life and you'll know how to, how to deal with it properly. But here's the confidence I have. If I ask for something According to God's will, he hears me, and his answer to me is going to be yes, if it's his will. He will not withhold it from me. And if I'm not asking according to his will, well, then he's going to say, no, that's not something I would want to do for you, Bobby. That's going to hurt you, not help you, or not bless you. John's point simply is this. We know our prayers are heard and answered. And that's something that's a blessing to me this week. So when my old flesh says, ah, oh, why pray? Does it really matter? Yeah, John says it does matter because God loves to bless his children and give them what they ask for. The third thing, we know that our sin does not jeopardize our eternal life. I hope your ears perked up a little bit. We know that our sin that we committed after we got saved, we know that our sin does not jeopardize our eternal life. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Two of the most controversial verses in all of John's writing. 
Now, context matters. This is why we don't practice proof texting to build a systematic theology. We take things in context. The context here is verse 11 and 12, which is confirming the believer's assurance of salvation because they have life through the Son, because they believe the true testimony about who Jesus really is. Here's what you need to remember. Death is separation from God. Death is in opposition to eternal life. Therefore, the sin that leads to death is the sin of rejecting Christ's atonement. It is the sin of calling God's testimony a lie. So no true believer should worry about committing an unpardonable sin. They're incompatible. Because if you believed on Jesus Christ, you've already passed that. You've already, you're already on the other side of that. What's unforgivable is rejecting Jesus Christ. What's, what's unforgivable is saying, the Holy Spirit's a liar, the water and the blood don't testify, the eyewitnesses are all wrong. We reject God's testimony of who Jesus Christ truly is. So let me make it more simple. Yes, the child of God will commit sins. I'm sure I can get a witness right now from a lot of living rooms. Yes, a child of God will still commit sins. But our sin is a momentary failure in the face of temptation. Our sin is not one of rejecting God and his way to salvation. Do you see the difference? In the context, the brother or sister who is sinning a sin unto death is the person who is sinning with a heart that has not been transformed by the new birth. Even if someone self-identified as a Christian, it's pretty clear that John is referring to those who have pulled away from the church and who have denied that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and the significance of his atoning death. So let me make it even simpler. The sin that does not lead to death is the sin that Christians still commit after they get saved. It means you, yeah, we do sin after we get saved. The Bible wishes we wouldn't, but John said, but if you do, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. What do he say in chapter one? Confess your sins, and I have the promise that I, God will forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. So the sin that does not lead to death is the sin that we believers will commit in the face of temptation after we've been born again. The sin that leads to death is the sin of the unbeliever. It's that sin that rejects Jesus Christ. Here's the fourth thing we know. We know God's children don't practice sinful lifestyles. God's children don't practice sinful lifestyles. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Him. So let me cover it again. We know already from previous chapters of context, John openly discusses the fact that Christians sin after they are born again. We still commit transgressions. God doesn't want us to. He says, if you do, I've made an advocate available, Jesus Christ the righteous, your sins will be forgiven. There's a big difference here 
between someone who believes God's testimony and puts their faith in Jesus Christ versus someone who rejects God's testimony and rebels against calling Jesus their Lord. Practically, both the saved and the unsaved can still commit sins. The difference is the saved has a, have a Savior who has paid the price for their sins, propitiation, remember that word, and the saved have a Savior who have erased the record of sins, expiation we talked about a few weeks ago, and he has covered all of that in his own blood, completely expunging the record. Those who reject Christ are still in their sins, still facing death's penalty, still the sinful record stands against them as a testimony, and there's a big difference between those two groups of people. Let me make this even simpler for you. If you're journaling, I want you to look at verse 18, and I'm going to give you some things to write. We know that everyone, beside the word everyone, I want you to write your name. Let's read further. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, right there, I want you to write Jesus Christ. Put Jesus' name right there. He's the one who was born of God. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Beside the word him, I want you to write your name again. Now, if you have it laid out like that, this verse makes a beautiful testimony for you. Let, let me use my name here. We know that Bobby has been born of God and does not keep on sinning, but Jesus Christ protects Bobby and the evil one cannot touch Bobby. That makes me feel good. Well, I, I know that Bobby's been born of God and, and, and I don't live a life of intentional sin. Going to sin, going to confess it, going to be forgiven, but it's not my modus operandi. It's not the walk I want to walk. I'm ashamed when I do sin. I don't want to hurt God. I don't want to hurt other people. So I don't keep on sinning, but Christ protects Bobby and the evil one cannot touch Bobby. Now just put your name in there and you'll come to really love 1 John 5, 18. Let me read this from two other translations a little more paraphrased translations, it makes really uh, perfect sense. It'll bring clarity to the issue. This is from the New Living Translation. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. For God's Son holds them securely. Again, I have this picture, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is God, it's just like this. Now, I'll even read that for you in a minute. God's son holds us securely. And because he's holding us securely, the evil one cannot touch them, us, the born again, the saved. Let, let me read this from a different version. This is God's word translation. We know that those who have been born from God don't go on sinning. Rather, the son of God protects them and the evil one can't harm them. Now remember the context is assurance of salvation. God's got you. You're going to be fine. And because you have the son, you have eternal life. You see, it was John who wrote in John's gospel, John chapter 18, the words of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said. I give them eternal life 
and they will never perish. That's you and I. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and my Father are one. Do you see why this is such an encouragement to us this morning? No one can snatch you out of God's hand. My Father, Jesus says, is greater than all. You are never going to perish. The evil one cannot touch you. Without God's permission, the evil one cannot touch you. Here's the fifth thing John wants us to know. Our lives are under God's power. Ties right into this thought. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Exactly what we were just saying. We've been born into a new life in God and we are no longer operating under the power of the world. We're living under the power and the authority of Almighty God. He has us in his hand. The world cannot touch us. The evil one cannot touch us without his permission. In the words of the great 1990s social theologian, M.C. Hammer, you can't touch this. It's all I could think about when I was studying this verse, that song from the 90s, you can't touch this. Now, M.C. Hammer meant you can't dance like me. What John means is I am resting safely in God's hand and you can't touch me. Now, we just talked about angels and evil powers a few months ago and, and demons and devils. And don't get freaked out about all that because God's got you and you're okay. He's going to meet your needs. What could be more encouraging in a time where there's a pandemic sweeping the world? God's got you. You're in his hand. The evil one cannot touch you. You're good. Here's John's closing thought for the entire 1 John letter. Number six, we know we have a forever relationship with God. This is what we know. I'm not in a temporary relationship with God. I'm in a permanent relationship with God. And we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. We are in his Son, Jesus Christ this is one of the strongest statements in the entire Bible about Jesus being God. He is the true God. He is eternal life. If somebody says, can you prove Jesus is God? 1 John 5.20, he is the true God and eternal life. And you and I are in a forever relationship with eternal life, which is found in Jesus Christ, that true God. As the apostle closes now with one more verse, a very short one, he says all of us are faced with that binary choice again. You'll either worship God or you'll worship idols. There is nothing else. There is no other choice, A or B. If we went all the way back to the creation of mankind and looked at human history as recorded in the scripture, really this was the choice. You're going to serve God? Or are you going to make an idol, a God, an idol is a God of your own manufacture? How about that? So here's how John ends it. Verse 24, little children, keep yourselves from idols. We will either worship the God, the true God who has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Or you and I will devise a God of our own likeness, our own choosing. We'll devise a God we like. One of the things we want to be sure we do at Cornerstone is we want to be sure that we're worshiping the authentic 
Jesus Christ. Not a Jesus we've made up or a Jesus that we like better than the one that really exists, the one that's maybe, you know, a little different in some areas. Uh, a, Jesus, uh, a Jesus of our own designs, just another idol. We take him as the scripture has revealed him. And there are testimonies that stand and the Holy Spirit gives witness to who the real Jesus really is. Now, there's a lot of assurances in that 1 John chapter 5. Maybe if you read that a few times this week with the notes I've given you today, you'll find those assurances will flood your soul that God's got you. You can know you're saved. You have the son. You have life. If you feel like you're a bit of a failure sometimes spiritually, David, come over here and get ready to close this in prayer. If you get, feel like sometimes you're a failure spiritually, we all feel that sometimes. Because growth is not a straight arrow up for us. It's up and down, but mostly up over time. So try to hold these things in your heart this week. We'll be connecting with you uh, on, on uh, social media throughout the week. Children's links are going to be up here in just a few minutes for your kids to enjoy some content. Pastor David, pray for us. Father, we thank you um, that we've had a chance to look through the, the wonderful books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and, and we've had a chance to be encouraged once again and be confident and be assured that we overcome because we have faith in you. Um, we have victory because of our love that we have for you and the love that you have for us. Um, Father, I'm praying this week that, that you would instill that truth in our hearts more deeply and in our heads more deeply, that when we um, fret, when we have anxiety about whatever the future holds right now, Father, that we would cling back to your words of truth, that you are with us and that you have us and that the evil one cannot harm us. Um, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through Jesus, who is the Lord, who is God, as we've just um, read today from chapter 5. We just thank you that you have given us so much wonderful things, that you've given us life, and not just life here on earth, but eternal life with you. We, we pray this week, God, that you would hold us and keep us. You'd uh, give us continued safety and protection and wisdom as we face this week. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you. We'll see you on social media.